Well, uh, good morning and welcome to Sunday School here at Faith Baptist Church. So this week we continue on the subject of scripture reading and corporate worship. And this morning is part two of that topic, which will cover the practice of scripture reading and public worship in the New Testament and Christianity. So just a quick recap from last week. We looked at public scripture reading in the Old Testament, and we looked at verses like Exodus 24-7 and Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 8, and we saw a pattern of reading the Bible or reading the book of the law, or you see the language, the words of the law, or the book of the covenant, and this is usually referring to the Torah or the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. Um, We also thought through the idea of uh, covenant renewal or covenant confirmation. In other words, the practice and pattern of reading from the book of the law in the Old Testament was usually associated with calling the people of God to remember their identity as the people of God, to remember God's covenants and to remember their covenant obligations. And we talked about some of those distinctions between how let's say a a Reformed Baptist um, and a Presbyterian may view those differently. So we had a little discussion on that. Um, And we'll revisit that idea today and I'll try and flesh that out a little more. Um, We also looked at the practice of the public reading of scripture and in the uh, culture of Judaism. We read 1 Timothy 4.13, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. And I asked this question, Did Paul just make up this practice of the public reading of scripture or was he building on something that came before him? Was it novel or was it really an old practice? And I argue that it wasn't a new practice, but he was building on something. Something was happening that uh, the spirit was working in the New Testament church to continue, um, even if through a different form, principally the same. well, so we, we saw that um, the public reading of God's word was happening in synagogue worship. Acts 13, 2 Corinthians 3, Luke 4 all show that. And we ended last week by looking at the cultural context of the New Testament practice of reading the scriptures publicly. Right? And we looked at the uh, literacy, education of that practice. So that's all recap. That's what we sort of dealt with last week. Um, now, this week, we'll sort of hit this uh, second subject, again, New Testament and Christianity. Now, the public reading of Scripture, um, when you think about it and you look at the Gospels, hit its climax at the start of Jesus' public ministry. He stood up in the synagogue and he read from the Scriptures. Um, this was how Jesus started, again, his earthly ministry. And we saw Luke 4, or we read Luke 4 last week, but let's, let's read it again. So turn to Luke 4, and we'll start reading at verse 16 down through 20. Luke 4, 16 down through 20. So who wants to read that for us? Nice and loud. Sure. Go for it. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Okay, thank you. So you, you remember, <clears throat> we saw that uh, the reading of the text in the synagogue was accompanied by exhortation or an explanation of what was just read. And here, Jesus reads uh, Isaiah 61, or, or portion of it, and as is the custom of scripture, uh, the scripture reading with the explanation, this is what Jesus says. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So essentially, the word made flesh exposits the word here. He, he explains it. And the scripture reading was different from uh, any other uh, since Moses and Exodus 24, because no one could say, uh, today, uh, this is fulfilled in your hearing, in your presence. Um, but this is what Jesus says as he is explaining what the scriptures are saying here. Now let's look at this or consider this scripture reading um, to be broadened to include the New Testament uh, text. And you'll see this in your handout under that first, first point there. When you look at the, uh, the um, New Testament and the practice of scripture reading, uh, it's a normal part of church life and worship. But what you see is not just that it's uh, the, the Torah read or the Pentateuch. Um, you see this sort of broadening of the scriptures that the writings that are considered scripture and are read. So 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So the sacred text read is broadened to include not just the words of Jesus, but also those inspired words of the original apostles. Let's look at Peter's view of Paul's writings. In 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16, he says, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. These are some, or rather, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter placed these writings of Paul on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. And Peter uses this, uh, a, a Greek word here to refer to Paul's writings. Um, I think it's uh, graphe. And the Greek word is used 51 times in the New Testament, and it refers to, when it's used, Old Testament writings and all those other places. So scripture here was a technical term that the New Testament used to refer to God's authoritative writings in the Old Testament. And again, Peter puts Paul's writings on the same level with the Old Testament writings here. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of build a case and show you that uh, the writings of the apostles were also uh, seen as authoritative and put on the same level as the Old Testament writings um, and included in the public readings. 
Uh, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he quoted a passage from Luke and he called it scripture. And Timothy 4, and, um, 1 Timothy rather 5, 5.18, he says this, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Now I can't spend too much time here, but the point I'm trying to make is that the sacred text read is broadened to include not just the Old Testament text or the words of Jesus, but also those inspired words of the apostles. When our first Timothy 4.13 says, uh, devote yourself, Paul says to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, this includes all of sacred scripture. The whole counsel of God's inspired, sufficient, certain, and infallible word. Okay. Now I'm going to uh, just sort of hand out a few different texts that we'll read together to see this. So first, we've got Colossians 4.16. Who wants that? Ronnie? Okay. And then 1 Timothy 5. Sorry, 1 Thessalonians 5.27. Who wants that? Okay. All or one? Okay. <laughs> and then um, Revelation 1.3. Who wants that? All right, Mr. Wood. Okay. So again, we want to, as, as we read these texts, what we're listening for is um, how the New Testament writings are read along with those Old Testament texts. The uh, tradition is broadened to include New Testament writings as well, or the uh, writings and letters of the apostles. So first, Colossians 4, 16. And when this letter has been read among you, Okay, so read this letter. Once it's read among you, make sure that they read it. Also, make sure the letter that they have, you read. Right? So these are uh, Paul's letters. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 5.27. I have the 1 Thessalonians, is that correct? So, yes, first, sorry. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Again, uh, read this letter to all the brothers. It's a again, a broadened uh, tradition that includes the New Testament writings. And then Revelation 1, 3, in really plain terms, says, says this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Okay, thank you. So again, you see the, the point there. We could bring out more text, but you see the point of these letters being read. Uh, the practice was... Uh, writing of the letter, give it to the brothers, give it to the church, read it. <clears throat> and it's not, <clears throat> excuse me, this isn't just private reading, which we'll talk about in a little bit. It's not just private, but it's public reading. It's uh, read it among the brothers. Um, read it in the, the gathered assembly is, is what's being said here. Here's a quote from uh, Justin Borger. Uh, he's a local pa pastor at a PCA church here in, in Orlando. He says, the public reading of scripture is an essential element of Christian worship for the covenant people of God. Indeed, it is arguably the most foundational element of worship because all other elements of worship, such as prayer and praise, preaching and the sacraments, come in response to the hearing of God's word. 
It is a great tragedy that this practice has fallen on hard times and in some cases has been largely replaced by private reading of scripture. Private meditation on God's law cannot replace public reading of scripture, especially in a society like ours. He says, which has become increasingly characterized by expressive individualism. The church desperately needs to return to this ancient practice of the spiritual formation in community, or of a spiritual formation in community. <clears throat> Which is a, a great quote, and I think he's absolutely right. He's, he's on to something there. We'll talk about that a little more in this next point which is the function and effect of the public reading of scripture. The function and effect of the public reading of scripture. <clears throat> All right, so what we wanna think about in this section is what is God doing in his people through the public reading of scripture? And we wanna ask, how's he doing that? What's he doing and how's he doing it? We want to do this by looking at what, what, what's behind the exhortation in 2 Timothy, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy 4, 13. I keep getting my numbers mixed up. 1 Timothy 4, 13. Now, a couple of verses, I think, give some context to 1 Timothy 4, 13. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture that help us to sort of see What's going on there? What's the, why this encouragement? What is Paul getting at when he tells Timothy to do this? First Timothy chapter one, verses three through seven. And I'll read it for us. It says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse five, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, he says, by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In other words, some are deviating, they're deviating from a tradition and they're getting into myths and endless genealogies and speculations. And so he tells Timothy later on, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. Another text where we see that gives some context to 1 Timothy 4.13. Um, 1 Timothy chapter four, verses one through three. Let's take a look at that. Let me have someone read uh, those three verses for us. First Timothy 4, 1 to 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Okay, so again, he's bringing out this deviation from uh, the practice and pattern of reading uh, the scriptures. So, <clears throat> what's happening here? 
So there were some uh, who had, or some men who had some type of church leadership, and they were teaching doctrines that shifted from the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. There were vain discussions, uh, myths, uh, new theological speculations that started to characterize their fellowship. And what does Paul tell them? He gave them instruction that should be assumed to be a norm and a standard in the Pauline churches. He tells them to devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. Now, I should mention that there are different theologians and Bible scholars who understand Paul's uh, instruction in 1 Timothy 4.13 to mean not uh, public, but private readings. So their um, interpretation would be this idea that the individual is supposed to watch his reading and structure his reading in such a way that his primary influences are the word of God. And so his mind's meditation should be tethered to the sacred text. Now, I don't disagree with that. I think that principle is right and good. But I think the, the context and the flow here in 1 Timothy 4 seems clearly to be pointing to something broader than just private scripture reading. The NIV, the NASB, the uh, ESV translations all take that interpretation. Uh, Philip Towner um, said this. He um, has really a great commentary on um, First and Second Timothy. He said this, while almost all aspects of the related discussions continue to be under construction, a point of convergence that seems to have emerged whether the individual reading is sort of uh, in mind here or the corporate reading is this, that the reading and hearing of certain significant texts influences the formation, shaping, redefining, and defining of the individual and the corporate identity. In other words, however this is viewed, whether individual or, or public, the point is that the reading of the text is shaping the very identity of the person reading or listening. We could say that the scriptures were um, intentionally read as a way to answer that question of who are we? Who are we? And so the, the reading of the Bible answers that. The reading of God's word answers that. When we are gathered together on the Lord's day and the scriptures are read, it's reminding us of who we are. It's shaping our minds, our wills, our affections, our very identity is found in the Bibles and in the, in the reading of the text. So again, it's answering that question, who are we? And so if we, if we can, if the Bible can say, um, if we can ask the question, who are we? And the Bible gives us the answer, then we ought to say, okay, if the Bible says this is who we are, then the question becomes, how then shall we live? How do we live in a culture that is um, progressively, consistently uh, anti-God and anti his principles, his commands, his rules. Um, the Bible continues to inform our thoughts and our affections in that way. I was thinking about <clears throat> how to put this in a way that helped me to understand it better as well. Um, my truck, a couple of weeks ago, it needed a wheel alignment. Right? So it was pulling right. Um, that's a problem, of course, but that problem is caused by other problems. And if I don't fix that problem, it'll cause more problems, right? So my, my truck is driven. I had to take it into the shop and they had to give it a wheel alignment. When we gather to 
be given to the worship of God together to hear the scriptures read and pray and sing and the preach word and the sacraments, there's, there's an alignment happening there. Um, our thoughts are being realigned. Our affections are being realigned. And so the word of God being read um, takes our drifting uh, thoughts, uh, affections, wills, and it brings them back into alignment by reminding us of God's meta-narrative, his big picture, and our place in it. Um, what is God doing in his church? Um, what's our place in what he's doing? And how are our um, minds aligned with what the scripture says? And this is the blessing of the Lord's Day each week. <laughs> Throughout the week, we deal with all types of uh, temptations from a thousand different directions and tugging at our loves and our wills and our minds. And when we gather together, the word God, God's word is read and we, we pray and we sing and that wheel alignment is happening. That affection heart alignment is happening again. And so the, the function of the public reading of scripture is doing just that, along with the other aspects of the corporate worship. But the reading of scripture is doing, is doing that. It's calling us to the worship of God and it's aligning our thoughts and affections back to back to his word. So any any thoughts on that before I move forward? Okay. So as God's gathered people, we're called to be holy as he is holy. Uh, this people who the New Testament calls saints, us uh, in other words, our identity is found in union with Christ. And hearing God's word read publicly out loud is the, again, wheel alignment to our drifting and pulling sinful affections. It's correcting and bring us, bringing us into conformity to the word of God, away from the cultural narrative and worldviews that are constantly pressed on us. Our minds need that alignment. Our hearts, our speech, our eyes are all brought back into alignment with the great story of God's redemption. And even our, the, the call to worship um, and the scripture reading, you may have seen us in the past do that, um, hoping to do more of that in the future. Even the call and response, and I forgot to bring a hymnal, actually, no, I have one here. Even the call and response, now, I wanna show you this in, the, uh, in our hymnals that has the same idea of trying to bring our minds back into into alignment. So the, the call and response in, the, in our hymnals. The, um, so this section is actually entitled response or scripture reading, responsive um, reading. And it's section or 635, and it's on Christ's incarnation. And so essentially, uh, the minister would read a text, and there would be a response to that. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and the congregation saying, he was in the beginning with God. The minister saying, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And the congregation responds, in him was life and the life was the light of men. There's this um, communal corporate practice of uh, re reciting and reminding ourselves of the word of God. What he's doing and what he's doing through his covenant people and what he's accomplishing in their salvation. And this, this has been a uh, tradition and a pattern in the Christian church. 
And so the context of the pattern of the public reading of scripture in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament was often also associated and connected with some crucial or crisis moment. And this is what I mean. Uh, the context around Nehemiah 8 and Joshua 8 and other passages show this. Israel is in some crisis situation. They're either back from exile and confused about their identity or they're coming back to God after a time of spiritual exile, a time of abandoning God. And so the people are being called back to God and their identity as God's covenant people is being restated or reaffirmed. And this explains the function of scripture reading by relating it to the corporate identity of the people of God. So living in Yahweh's story meant retelling that story to make sure the old covenant people of God, no matter where they were or when they were, not only knew the origin of their identity, but where, it, where they were in it and where it was headed. And so the function, function of reading in the New Testament time in a Christian context had the same basic purpose. Again, Philip Towner said, the function of scripture reading in the New Testament era within the Christian movement undoubtedly served the same basic purpose. Again, new realities are observed or, or absorbed into the growing story of Israel's salvation. Now, regular public reading of scripture also served to locate a new identity in Christ being experienced by various non-Jewish converts converts in the story that have been the in process for centuries. He says, and the Christ event, particularly its core forming elements of crucifixion and resurrection became the relocated story center, not displacing the event of the Exodus, but rather prolonging the meaning of that formative covenant founding event and bringing the salvation into its proclaimed and new point of climax. So the context of 1 Timothy 4:13, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. The church was being uh, led astray away from focusing on the tradition of reading the scriptures to myths, to disputes, to endless genealogies. And so their understanding of their Christian identity was being uh, it was being threatened. And Paul tells Timothy pay attention, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. This was a different type of crisis than in the Old Testament, but it was a situation that does give us some context and show us some continuity for the function of the public reading of scripture. Again, there's a, a realignment happening here for the people of God. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, going on to um, the next point in our handouts here. Uh, public reading in the New Testament to today. Public reading in the New Testament to today. Now, I mentioned, I mentioned this before, but uh, we live in a uh, hyper-individualistic culture. Uh, and because of that, I think Western culture uh, tends to have a disposition to learning from any century besides our own, any decade besides our own, um, rather than just things in the present. We also tend to undervalue 
corporate identity and a sort of uh, united or unified sense of Christianity. You often sort of see this uh, desire to create some unique um, identity or, or unique uh, aspect of Christianity that is just sort of mine. Me and these people, this is how we experience and understand Christianity. Me and my friend, this is how we experience it. I have my own relationship with, with God. He knows I love him. He knows that Christ is my savior. And we just sort of do our own thing. But that's, that's foreign to uh, the history of Christianity and the, the tradition of the faith. Um, in, in addition to this, uh, some would argue that because we live in a culture of high literacy and we have easy access to the scriptures, the need for an oral public reading of scripture is not essential. So they would say, I agree with you, it was necessary then, but it's not the same today. We live in a time where everyone has a Bible <clears throat> and the cultural context and climate is different. So the idea of sort of a public uh, identity shaping you know, perspective is sort of antiquated and not really relevant. But <clears throat> since, since the New Testament church, the people of God have been challenged with the same goal of grounding its identity in Christ. And they've done this through the reciting and retelling of the story of faith and redemption. Now, I, I said this before, but there are many cultural views that challenge Christian values and ethics, from religious views to political views to economic and racial narratives. Um, these false narratives have to be identified and called out. Right? They have to be seen for what they are. And the light of God's truth, as the scriptures are read, exposes that. It, it shows us um, essentially what the Christian faith is and reminds us what the people are um, called to. Now, let me have someone read Colossians 3, 1 to 3 for us. Colossians 3, 1 to 3. And then someone else go to Romans 12, 1 to 3. Okay, go for it. Thank you. Yep. Okay, um, let me have you read verse four as well, sorry. Okay, thank you. So, set your minds on the things above, not the things on earth. You've been raised with Christ, your identity is in him. There's something that comes as a result of us having union with Christ. There's a practice there and a principle there that should be happening. It's reorienting our minds. Put them above, put them above, put them above. Now, this isn't a new concept. We see it in scripture. And that same um, need to do that, it's, we, we, we feel it today. Romans 12, 1 to 3. Who wants to read that? Thank you. So again, this same practice, um, 
not being uh, molded by uh, the world, its influence, its, its tugs on your heart, but being transformed, having your mind renewed by the word. And that actually gives you the ability to better discern and to live wisely in this age. <clears throat> in the letters to the, in this letter to Romans, it was written during a time um, in the culture where it was shaped by the Roman worldview. And the question they had to ask then is the same question that we have to ask today. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Those are the same three questions that has plagued the minds of philosophers throughout this age. Those are the same three questions that millennials and Gen Zs are aching to have answered. They want to know, uh, where did I come from? Why am I here? Or what's my purpose? And what happens when I die? Right, the story of God and his redemption answers those three questions. And the gathered church has the privilege every week of meeting with her God to get those questions answered again and again by reaffirming um, our, uh, our, what we're called to as believers, being reminded of our union with Christ and who we are as God's New Testament, New Covenant people. So worship gatherings and house churches uh, became this occasion for this practice, this sort of solidarity in, in, the, in the New Testament church, in the early church. It became a, a, a sort of platform for this solidarity, this union, this con, con, confirming and con, conforming. And of course, uh, these times were characterized by Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. These were the shaping and solidifying aspects of corporate worship. And we know from 1 Timothy 4 and other passages that scripture readings were a standard as well. Now, <clears throat> um, I, I don't want you to hear me saying in this sort of this history of the New Testament that we need to sort of go back to some uh, ideal first century New Testament church because I think if you've done reading in uh, historical theology or the church throughout this age since the New Testament, you'll see that there is no ideal um, New Testament church. The church in different times has always had various <laughs> doctrinal issues, issues of practice. But what I'm trying to draw out here is some of those foundational principles that were there and practices and really commands that you see in the New Testament that ought to be practices for us today. And throughout history at different times, the church has um, sort of gotten away from a practice of the public reading of scripture, um, longer passages, or for this sort of uh, mind-shaping, um, forming of the wills. And the church has also come back at different times. I just, I'm thinking about just after the time of uh, Gregory the Great in the 6th century, the medieval church started this practice um, of uh, lectio, uh, lectio selective. In other words, portions of biblical text being read as opposed to lectio continua, um, which is, that's Latin for continuous reading. So for instance, historically every Sunday, a section of the Bible could be read in such a way that uh, the next Sunday's reading would just pick off where that previous Sunday left off. And based off of this early practice, <laughs> of the exhortation uh, associated with the reading of the text, 
Terry Johnson said this, the practice of the synagogue became that of the apostolic church and then of the patristic church. The sermons of Clement of Alexandria, which is around 200 AD, Origen around 250 AD, um, Chrysostom and Augustine provide abundant testimony to the practice of sequential expository or lectio continua preaching in the early church centuries. Medieval preachers abandoned the, the patristic practice and preached largely topical sermons, he says. From the reformed, or but for the reformed, on the basis of their study of scripture and the church fathers, restored the early practice of lectio continua preaching. So Zwingli, uh, Bootser, uh, Capito, Calvin, and other and many others were all lectio continua preachers. They preached verse by verse through the books of the Bible. Now, thinking about what, what he said there, if they were preaching verse by verse through the books of the Bible, and we can assume from that early church practice that the exhortation was directly associated with the reading, there would be a reading and then an explanation, then it's safe to assume that they were reading verse by verse through the books of the Bible. And so, although it may not be common today, you're actually in good company with historical Christianity when the sermon is expository, when it's verse by verse, when there is a reading from the text uh, in, uh, um, consistent with that, that preaching. Now, most of us probably grew up in a church uh, where they would say that the word of God is the final authority. They would say that we believe that the word of God has the power to change lives and transform hearts. But there is a way to test whether they believe what they're saying. There's a way to determine whether their practice is consistent with their statement of faith. And this is the test. Does their corporate worship service reflect that they have a high regard for the word of God? Is it the main thing? Is the scripture reading and the preaching and the songs they sing and the prayers and the sacraments birthed out of and consistent with the word of God? Most of the time, it's hard to discern this after, you know, until you've been out of church for a while, but you often, we can, you can read a statement of faith of a church or you can go and, you know, people will say, yes, we love the word, we regard it highly. But over time, you can start to see what is sort of a, their, their ideals on different topics sort of deviate from what the Bible says. Um, and so we want to be a, a church that uh, you know, confesses we love the word, but also in practice show that we love the word um, in the different aspects of, of our service. And I think we're, we are doing a great job there. Um, okay, let me, let me move forward to our next point. We've got a few minutes left here. Um, what about creeds and confessions? That's uh, the next section there. What about creeds and confessions? Since the earliest Christian creeds and confessions, there has been a way for the church uh, to draw lines in the sand, to say this is what we believe and not that. It's been a way for the church to make distinctions between what Jesus and the apostles taught and the false teachings of heretics and copycats. Now, the point of this class is not to give a history of ancient creeds and confessions, but um, 
that, that would actually be a great class for another time. But um, I do want to talk about this for, for a little bit because I think it's important. Now, depending on how long you've been attending our church services here, you may have noticed that we've had readings from the 1689 Confession of Faith, um, the historic confession that our church holds to. In the past, we've also had readings from different creeds. Uh, these creeds go back to the 3rd and 4th century, Nicene um, Apostles' Creed. Now, you may wonder, so we have all the, we've had all this conversation about reading from the biblical text publicly. Where does a confession or creed fit in? Is that unbiblical? Isn't that inconsistent? <clears throat> uh, Philip Chaff, uh, the great church historian, started his three-part volume series by saying this. The Bible is the word of God to man. The creed is man's answer to God. The Bible reveals the truth and the popular form of life, in fact. The creed states the truth and the logical form of doctrine. The Bible is to be believed and obeyed. The creed is to be professed and taught. Hence, we find few traces of creeds in the Bible. Not none, but few. And the first sentence of the first paragraph of the first chapter in our confession affirms this. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving faith, uh, saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. That being said, we don't read our Bibles in isolation, neither privately nor publicly. John, John Murray later said, there is a reformed tradition. It is enshrined in the reformed creeds, theology, worship, and practice. We believe it to be the purest representation and expression of apostolic Christianity. It is in this tradition that we move. It is the stream along which we are born. It is the viewpoint we cherish, foster, and promote. We cannot abstract ourselves from it. It gives direction to our thought and practice. Creeds are not identical with scripture, but arises out of scripture. The readings from the historical creed or confessions that the church has confessed and held to for over 1,500 years is a way to affirm together God's wisdom through his church. Creeds and confessions are a form of exhortation and teaching. They concisely express doctrine that we hold to be biblical and true. This is why they um, arise, we say they arise out of scripture. The Nicene Creed from the fourth century is a statement of the Orthodox faith of the early church um, and its opposition to heresies, specifically Arianism. These heresies which disturbed and uh, disrupted the church during the fourth century concerned the doctrine of the Trinity in the person of Christ. The Nicene Creed affirms a biblical Orthodox exposition of the Trinity in Jesus Christ as truly God and truly man. The Apostles' Creed in the fourth century. Again, these are creeds that are often recited and read uh, during church services and just historically in Reformed churches. The Apostles' Creed, fourth century, is called the Apostles' Creed, not because it was produced by the apostles themselves, but because it contains a brief summary of their teaching. It affirms the virgin birth, life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and the essential character and belief of the Christian life. More than any other Christian creed, it can be called an ecumenical symbol of faith. So creeds and confessions, far from deviating from scripture, expound what we believe scripture to be teaching. 
It's a written expression of our interpretation of certain passages. Now, much more could be said about that, but I'll stop there for now and bring this to a close. And I'm going to end uh, with a, a longer quote by Philip Towner and then say a little bit about it. Um, he says this, in view of the diverse media with which modern societies spread their messages today, television and internet, and in view of the ready access most believers have to these media, the need to ensure that measures are taken in the church to reinforce Christian identity is all the more urgent. We are also called to live out a distinctively Christian witness within the world, not separate from it, so putting distance between us and those competing messages is not really an option, he says. But where within the vortex of messages will the church find its solidifying and anchoring sense of identity as the people of God? It must come through a shared participation in the symbolic and spiritual activities that we practice when we gather for worship. The lessons to be learned from 1 Timothy 4.13 and the background that informs the exegesis of this is that the deliberate public reading of scripture, according to a schedule or plan of some sort, is one way of rehearsing the acts of God on behalf of his people and his creation and finding and renewing our identity center in that story over and over again. It only takes a minimal amount of honest reflection to reveal how easily we are attracted to other competing stories and value systems for our sense of identity. So in closing, through the public reading of scripture, we remember who we are, our identity as God's people, in union with Christ is reaffirmed. Um, we remember who we are and we are and where we are in God's meta narrative. We drift in thought and love for God and his word and his people. Along with the other elements of the service, scripture reading is a realignment for the soul of the saint. And God has given that to us that practice not only biblically in the biblical tradition, but we also see it um, as uh, wisely practiced in the Reformed and Protestant church historically. So I'll close with that. That's what I have for us on this topic. I'm just at time. So um, I'll close with that and then, and then pray for us, okay? <clears throat>